for Bob and Ellen Carr. God bless you guys. We're praying for you and uh, trusting the Lord for uh, for healing for Ellen with her cancer. Uh, also, too, a little shout out to a dear old saint in her 90s, Ida. Ida down there in North Carolina, how you doing? And uh, she's not able to go to church, but she uh, she watches. So God bless you, Ida. Uh, with that, let's turn our Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 32, picking up uh, our narrative here. Uh, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul uh, and his life uh, and so forth, and uh, we're going to uh, kind of shift gears a little bit from Paul and look at Peter. And in verse 32, we're going to go right into chapter 10. And we're told here, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Uh, and there he found a certain man named uh, Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. And then he arose immediately. I like what Chuck Swindoll said about his kids. He said, I've been saying it to my kids for years. And uh, make rise and make up your bed, but they don't listen. And so he arose immediately. And, and so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated in the Greek, Dorcas, uh, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. And it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And so then Peter arose and he went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the windows stood, uh, widow, excuse me, stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed uh, many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. And there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He was a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who had feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, that is, the poor people, and prayed to God always. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and he said, what is it, Lord? And so he said to him, your prayers, your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier uh, from among those who waited on him continually. And so when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. And the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, noontime. 
And when he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, um, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up uh, into heaven. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had seen, meant, behold, the men uh, whom had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear uh, words from you. And he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them. And some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. We'll, we'll end right there and let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you, Lord, as we, Lord, look at these incredible events, Lord, taking place, Lord, in early Christian history. And Lord, uh, you've written, recorded them down to encourage us. Because, Lord, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're a God who's working in hearts and lives. And one of the things that we see here, Lord, is that you're challenging Peter. Lord, you're wanting to take him beyond, Lord, uh, personal bias. Lord, issues. Lord, in his heart, in his life. And, Lord, you're, you're wanting to do that with us as well. Wanting to free us up, Lord. Lord, wanting, Lord, like the Apostle Paul said, uh, to change him to such a degree that he became all things to all men. And yet, at the same time, he never really compromised truth. And so help us, I pray, Father, as we, uh, Lord, uh, look at this section, Lord, uh, in the book of Acts, the, the life of Peter, and, and just what you were doing in his heart and in, in his life. So, Father, thank you. Lord, we commit this time to you today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have seen the conversion of Paul, the Apostle Paul. We have seen uh, his, his early life. And uh, he was an incredibly bold individual, maybe even a little bit combative. Um, and what we find here, God is challenging him. God is, God is working his refinement in his life. And, and uh we don't hear from Paul for a number of years. One author I was reading said it was roughly about 10 years. Uh, so there was a, just a, a, a respite there where God was just working, you know, in Paul's life in a very, you know, uh, sometimes you call these things the silent years where you don't hear from somebody. But yet God is working. God is refining 
Uh, God is perhaps maybe just removing some things out of Paul's life um, and putting some other things in his life. You know, one of the things, it had to be difficult for Paul because he was a very orthodox Jewish person. Uh, He had a lot of rigidity, you know, about the Mosaic law and so forth. And here now he's met the Lord and he has to learn. He has to really learn how to practice grace and just like you and I, we're learning those things. Maybe we don't have the same background as Paul, but we have more of a, maybe perhaps a, uh, not a totally pagan background. We, you know, we have, I, you know, the thing is, you know, the, a lot of people don't realize that there's a benefit from living in America because you know why? There's a Judeo-Christian ethic. And, and it's amazing to how many families, people that, you know, maybe in their history, their parentage or their grandparentage, you know, there were believers, and, and so a lot of times, you know, certain, you know, biblical morality is passed down. People don't think of it in that sense. They think, well, you know, we're just, you know, we're moral people. Uh, you know, a lot of you know, Americans today, they take that tack, they take that particular line that, you know, they're just, you know, regular moral people. You know, this is what it is to be an American. But they don't realize that they have, you know, that they have developed those things along the line. They've sort of bled into the culture because we have what is called a Judeo-Christian ethic, a biblical ethic, you know, in our culture. But I tell you what, that's fast appear- disappearing, isn't it? We see it very, we even see courtesy disappearing, you know, in our culture and in our society. That's why it's important for you and I. We need to be salt and light. We need to make sure that we're really getting the light out there, um, getting the salt, you know, the, the salt of the gospel, the truth of the gospel out there. Uh, it may sting somebody, but you know what? Uh, that, that shows you that uh, uh, God's truth had an impact, you know, in their life and in their particular situation. Our scene now here shifts to Peter. You know, the thing is about Peter, he has not become this static exhibit of Christianity just sitting there in Jerusalem, you know, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, like a bishop or whatever the case may be would, you know, sit in his enclave or that kind of thing. It meant he's active. Uh, he's active. He's on the move. We see him here. He's reaching out. But he, too, is in training. God is training him. Uh, you know, God is refining the Apostle Peter. A lot of times we get saved and the light goes on. It's like, wow, what a wonderful thing it is to know the Lord. But sometimes there's just sort of attitudes and things that are entrenched in us that, that God knows they're there. We don't know they're there. You know, you get saved and you think you're, you're such a new creature in Christ. You don't think you have any of those issues anymore. But in given time, they come out, don't they? Uh, you know, certain, you know, attitudes and disposition, little biases, these kind of things, eventually they come out, and they come out because God wants to deal with them. God wants to bring them, us to bring them to him, uh, you know, get cleansed, and, and don't be discouraged. If you've got some kind of issue at work within your life, something you're struggling, it's the old nature, it's the old flesh, it's, you know, it could be gossip, you know, it could be cussing. Um, it could be, you know, a host of different things. Uh, you keep giving them to the Lord. You just keep, you know, sometimes we think, you know, because we maybe prayed about it one time, we, we turned it over once and we think that, you know, I should have victory, you know, kind of a thing. But it, it's not always that easy. Maybe, you know, I've seen people get delivered from drugs just like that. Okay, and I think in a, I think in a situation like that, uh, it, it, it needs to be like that. But a lot of times when it comes to these, you know, attitudes of life and, you know, you know, individual perspectives and things of that nature, the Lord is working, you know, over the course of our life, re- refining us and changing us and making us more and more uh, like himself. So what is happening here? God is getting the prejudice. 
He's getting the bias. He's getting these, drawing these things, you know, out of Peter because he comes from a long tradition of resentment against the outside world. Uh, Jonah is one who's a great illustration of that. Remember, God tells him, I want you to go and preach to those rotten Ninevites. You know, those Assyrians, they were nasty. They were, they were terrible people, the Assyrians, what they did when they would, um, you know, take a country over and they were brutal. And, and so God says to Jonah, the prophet Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to those. And you know what? He goes the other way. We know the story, right? Uh, he, he, you know, he, he, he's in the boat and then, uh, the, the sailors come down. He's sleeping in the hold of the boat. The, the sailors come down and, you know, what, what are you doing here? And, you know, call on your God. The ship's about to sink and so forth. And, and so he tries suicide by sailor. And so they throw him over and, uh, and God just has a nice big fish, you know, a whale, whatever it might have been. Could have been a, well, I think there's whale sharks and so forth. And here he's in the, the cauldron of this, <laughs> this, this fish's belly for three days. And um, and God has a way, doesn't he? He has a way of, of changing our minds, you know, through the very circumstances sometimes that, that we choose. And, of course, we know that he goes to Nineveh, he preaches, and there's revival. I mean, I mean, from the from the from the uh, the president on down, you know, they're getting saved and man, he's ticked off. <laughs> he's mad at them. And it's interesting. I, I love what Jonah says, because a lot of times people have this, this idea of the Old Testament God as if he shoots fire bolts out of his fingers and, and he's judgmental and he, he's not. He's, a, he's always been a gracious and wonderful God. Under that dispensation, things were different, yes. But here's what Jonah, Jonah says. He says, then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, uh, and he did not do it. Verse 1 of chapter 4, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, he said, he said, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I mean, he's been arguing with God all the way along about this, you know, this issue that... Uh, you know, they don't deserve it. They don't, they didn't. That's grace, isn't it? Isn't that the wonderful grace of God? You know, we, we think about people, you know, that, oh, I don't think God will ever save them because, you know, they, 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 you know, they don't deserve it or whatever the case may be or they're horrible people. And he says, therefore, I fled to Tarshish. Now, here's what he said. Here, here's, here's the revelation, the great revelation that comes to us about the God of the Old Testament through the prophet Jonah when he says this. He says, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. And he says, now therefore, O Lord, please take my life. I mean, all the way along in this whole story, he's wanted to die. Isn't it amazing how stubborn we can be? I mean, God just wanted to use him as a vessel to save people. And it's like, you know, he's so bummed and angry about it. Lord, take my life. And, and of course, uh, you know, it's interesting as you leave the story of Jonah, he's angry. He's angry from the beginning to the very end. And yet at the same time, too, God's grace, you know, came through the message that he preached. And, and he knew, he knew that uh, God was a gracious God. And yet we find that Peter, he comes from a long tradition of resentment against the outside world. And again, if you and I were there in that circumstance or situation, we would not feel perhaps any differently. Now, even the Hebrew Christian community struggled with this issue. 
And that's why we find that God is leading Peter into Gentile territory. Like we said before, this is about 10 years. This is about 10 years into the early church. And, and we saw a couple chapters ago the scattering that came to the church. And this said they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Uh, you, you see, this was God's design. God, you know, he wants to save the world. Okay, he wants to save the world of mankind. Uh, he's not willing, the Bible says, to let any perish. And so uh, he saves you and he saves me. He saves his people. Uh, and then we become, in a sense, the gospel uh, in shoe leather to reach out to those outside of Christ. Now, we're told here in verse 32, he goes, he's basically traveling through all parts of the country. And, and so he comes down to this uh, city, Lida. Actually, the Tel Aviv airport is in that, posi- in, the, in that place today. Um, and he finds there uh, Aeneas, an uh, individual who had been bedridden uh, for eight years and was paralyzed. And so Peter says, Aeneas, uh, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. Now, Peter obviously had the gift of healing. And, and one of the things that you see with Peter, maybe it's just part of his personality, the way God worked through him. Uh, we, we see a spontaneous kind of thing. Um, remember Acts chapter 3, the, the paralytic that was at the temple. They were going up to the temple to worship. And the paralytic is there. And, uh, and he's begging for money. And, and Peter says, Peter fixes his eyes on him. It's just a totally spontaneous thing. And he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, he reaches out his hand, rise up and walk. And we know the guy takes his hand. And here, this is this guy's. He's he's been basically uh, um, paralyzed his whole life, a congenital kind of a case. And you can imagine as he's picking him up, the snapping of the joints, the strengthening of the ligaments and the muscles. And all of a sudden, this guy is leaping, jumping, and praising God in the temple courts. And so we see a, a, another kind of a spontaneity here, you know, with. With Peter here, as he just basically says down to says to Aeneas, Aeneas rather, and, uh, and 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 so we see that in Lydda and Sharon, uh, many people had turned to the Lord. So also do we see these gifts? He's he's a pastor. <laughs> Uh, he's got the gift of healing. He's also an evangelist. Uh, in it, you know, God using him in so many so many different ways. And so uh, we, we, we come now in verse 36 to Joppa. Both of these towns were had considerable Gentile populations. They were commercial centers, um, you know, not, not far at all from, 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 the, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea. And there's a disciple there named uh, Tabitha. That's the Aramaic uh, Hebrew. Uh, translated into Greek, and we get everything pretty much translated into Greek for us. Uh, her name is Dorcas. And basically the, name, the, the, name means the, the two names mean the same thing. They mean gazelle. And so we're told here in our story here that uh, uh, she was full of good works and charitable deeds. Just a gracious. That was her ministry. And that's why I would encourage you, find your ministry. Find And, and her ministry specifically, it seems to be, from this story, it seems to be to widows. Uh, you know, sometimes God calls us to a certain segment of the culture, to the society. He may call us to minister to children. He may call us to minister to just to go in and visit sick people. Um, uh, we have Frankie Hernandez. He goes into prisons and ministers, you know, to the to the individuals in the prisons. Uh, God is going to call you, perhaps, maybe to minister to a certain group of people. Could be just the women in your neighborhood. 
uh, whatever the case may be, but to find that niche wherever it is that God has called you. And so uh, Tabitha obviously had found this niche. Um, uh, you know, we know it's not just something cultural for them, but uh, we men tend to die before our wives. Uh, and in that ancient culture, you know, where, where people worked very hard, um, you know, the men would, would pass uh, probably much sooner than the women. And so there were many women in, in, in the early church there in that culture, in the society. We saw that uh, over in Acts chapter 5, uh, that there was a whole new uh, ministry drafted uh, and given to the deacons to minister and to feed uh, the, uh, the women who were widows. And so uh, Peter is in Lydda, and they hear that. And so uh, the folks there in Joppa, uh, they send and dispatch, you know, for Peter to come, and he comes. And in verse 39, we find that uh, he comes to this upper room, and all these widows are there. They're, they're standing by. They're weeping. They're brokenhearted about the situation. And in verse 40, it tells us Peter puts them all out. Uh, it's, this, is, this is almost a carbon copy of what Jesus does in Mark chapter 5. Remember, Peter was there. And, uh, and I remember Pastor Chuck saying about ministry, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to learn ministry in an academic setting. He said ministry is caught and not taught. And the disciples learned that. Their, their three-year practicum uh, with Jesus, they learned so much. And so this is almost, you know, almost a, uh, a replica of the miracle that Jesus performed uh, with Jairus' daughter. I think it's in Matthew chapter 9 and in Mark chapter 5. That he puts them all out. He kneels down and prays. And he does That's not cruel. He just puts them out. He wants to be distracted. He wants to pray, perhaps maybe get the mind of the Lord. You know, what does the Lord want? Does the Lord want me to lay hands, you know, on on Tabitha and pray for her? Uh, I remember a few years ago. Uh, um, some of you remember uh, Bernie Decker, and Bernie was with us, and he was jog- he was a jogger, and he jo- was jogging one morning, got in the shower, and collapsed in his shower. By the time they got him basically to the hospital, he had passed away. Bernie was 49 years old. And I remember, I remember because uh, we received a call. And, uh, and I said, you know, I said, well, you know, I forget who I took with me. But I said, you know, let's go up. Let's go up to the hospital. Let's go up to RGH. And, uh, and if they'll let us in to the, to the emergency, wherever it is, you know, let's, let's pray for him. Um, and so we, 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 we got there. And, and Bernie was, you know, he was on a, on a gurney. And. Um, he was gone. He was passed. And, and, uh, and it, you know, I just went up to pray. And, and I didn't know if the Lord was going to do anything or not. And, uh, but the Lord chose to, to take Bernie home uh, at that age. And, of course, that was a heartbreak uh, for his bride and, and, and for his family and even for, for all of us. Um, you never know what the Lord's going to do. I, 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 that's the first time I've ever done that. I've never laid hands on anybody that had passed uh, but, you know, I was just open, Lord, if you want to heal him, because I, I, I don't have any gift of healing, but uh, we know the one who does, right? And, uh, and maybe, perhaps, maybe you might have a chance one time, uh, you know, to do something like that, to, to pray some, for someone who, who you love and, and uh, to lay hands on them. And, and you never know. You never know what the Lord um, is going to do. And so... Uh, we're told she opens her eyes, he prays for her. She opens her eyes and she sat up. And, um, and so he calls the saints, you know, the, the believers in and the widows, and he presents her alive. Now, what's interesting here, two things stand out. The two things that stand out is God is working in Gentile communities. 
That was biggie for them. You know, we read that sometimes we read over that we miss it. But that was big for them. That was a big issue. Because again, it, you know, they receive, they're waiting for their Jewish Messiah. But it didn't begin and end with them. Because God said to Abraham, you know, when he called Abraham back in Genesis 12, he says, you know, I'm calling you that you and your offspring are going to be a blessing to every family on the earth. So God, this was, you know, it wasn't just, you know, well, you know, my, my people, the Hebrew people turned from me by default. Now I'm going to, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. No, 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 no. This was part of his plan all along. Okay. And, um, and sometimes when God's plan is being worked out, it sometimes, you know, doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always unfold the way we want it to. It's not always a neat kind of a situation. Sometimes it can be kind of sticky. Another thing that we see here in verse 43, that uh, Peter, he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. Now that's a problem. That's a problem for a kosher Jew to be around all these dead things, all these smelly things. Have you ever gone into a taxidermy shop or a tanning, a place where they tan? It's like you can smell it kind of like a half a block away. And uh, Dr. Kent Hughes says this. He says, all of this taken together had a wonderfully softening effect on Peter's prejudice. He was doing Christ's work away from Jerusalem in the midst of a defiling grit of Gentile culture. Positive experiences can go miles in rearranging our attitudes. We have all seen a basketball team fall behind, but suddenly get a couple of quick baskets and reverse the momentum. Well, spiritually, too, key experiences can change our lives dramatically. After this final miracle, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with, with a tanner by the name of Simon. The significance of this is that a tanner's place of business was anathema to a fastidious Jew. It was highly unpleasant and smelly. Animals were slain there. Tanners were ostracized and had to live 50 cubits outside of town. Rabbinical law stated that if a betrothed woman discovered that her fiancé was involved in tanning, she could break the engagement. However, Peter had met a, a Jewish tanner who loved Jesus, and he was willing to associate with him. God was at work in the impulsive apostle's heart. The old biases were wearing thin. God has a way of softening our prejudices if we are the least bit willing to learn. And Peter's attitude toward the world was mellowing. A bigger change was still yet to come. Now, we want to get into chapter 10. And speaking here of Gentiles, enter Cornelius. He's a Roman uh, army officer. He is a centurion. And one of the things that we realize uh, that... Uh, you know, when you think about Romans and Jews, you know, they were, you know, the Roman soldiers were not friends in any way, you know, and in any way uh, to the Jewish people because they were considered occupiers. And uh, so there's, you know, just the distance they kept. But see, this guy is interesting because as we, we look at his resume in verse 2, that we are told that he's a devout man with all his household. He also gave alms generously to people, that is to the poor people. Okay, so he's a wealthy man, and sometimes these centurions, they were sort of, I guess, comparable to a, a captain today or a major today, and these, these men oftentimes 
uh, were promoted to those positions because they exhibited incredible cur- courage, you know, cur- you know, just courage and bravery in battle. A lot of these guys had scars to prove it. Uh, so they were they were really you know considered and looked at in a very important kind of a way. And uh, he gave alms generously to people. He prayed to God always. Now, the thing that we see about this guy, obviously, he has seen the emptiness of pagan, Roman, and Greco religion. And obviously, he's also influenced, you know, by by biblical Judaism. He, you know, he, he sees, you know, that uh, uh, there's a difference there. And, you know, in a sense, you know, when people... You know, obviously, you know, living in that culture, he saw it. How long it took him to see that, we don't know. Uh, but I think, too, you know, as people are exposed to our life in some kind of way, that they need to see a difference. That They need to see. That's why, you know, I think there's, um, there's a trend taking place in Christianity to throw away all of our standards, to throw away all of our convictions to relate to people. Folks, that does not work. All that does is, is solidify somebody in their ungodly, carnal practices. Uh, now, it's important that we, you know, we come off as sort of self-righteous or, or pointing the finger at, you know, people's sin. But we live in such a way, with, with such integrity, that people, you know, are drawn to that. They're, they're drawn to that kind of character. They're drawn to that kind of life when they see, you know, just the life of God, you know, in God's people. You know, how we interact with them. You know, how we convey ourselves, how we live. You know, sometimes it's not only by the things we, we don't do, but sometimes by the things that we do, that we reach out to help people, that we, you know, God calls us, not only his own, his beloved, his bride, but he calls us servants. And sometimes, you know, as we serve people, you know, uh, uh, I was reading about the, uh, uh, I can't think of his name, but he was, uh, he was the, uh, the president of a college, a Bible college, uh, somewhere up in the Pacific Northwest, and he was a believer. And uh, he's going to church one day, and uh, he looks over, and his neighbor's trying to, basically trying to, uh, a, one of the plumbing pipes in his front lawn broke, and water's going all over the place. And uh, he took his Bible back in, got his work clothes on, and went over and helped his neighbor. And I don't know the long and short of that. Uh, I forget the story, some of the details of the story. But I, I would imagine that made a tremendous impact, you know, on his neighbor who wasn't a Christian, who wasn't a believer. The mere fact that this guy who, you know, a college president, uh, that he's willing to come over, you know, and help me with the dirtiest job I ever had to do, you know, kind of a thing. So I think it's very important also, too, for us to, to be doing that. Now, as we look at this guy, he was what was called a God-fearer. He was not a full convert to Judaism. Now, we don't know why that is. I would suspect perhaps as a soldier, um, you know, anybody in the military know this, when you, when you get transferred from one place to another, um, and being a fully converted proselyte to Judaism, he had to be three, time, three feasts a year. Uh, he had to be there in Jerusalem. And maybe he figured, maybe I just can't do that. You know, with my military career and so forth, and I would think maybe that would be a justifiable reason for him not to become, but he was a God-fearer. He respected everything about, you know, the God of the Bible that he had, that he had heard. And we're told here about the ninth hour, that is noon, that he clear, that he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Um, what I find is interesting about this, this angel could have been sent to him at any time, but he was sent to him when Cornelius was praying. I think there's an insight there. I I think God is saying that he honors when we pray. 
He meets with us when we pray. It may not be this dramatic, okay? <laughs> we, we may not get some angelic visitation. But I tell you, when you pray, you get inspiration. You get guidance. You get direction. You get God's you know, intervention in our situation and in our circumstances. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is, what is it, Lord? Uh, and the Lord said, Your prayers and your alms have come up for memorial before God. Now, what, what this tells us here is that God takes special notice of our prayers and the good deeds that we do. Now, we don't earn our salvation. We know that, okay? But God takes notice of the things that we do in his name. Remember, uh, over in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it said, God is not unrighteous to forget. You know, the, the good things that we do and all, you know, all the, the labor of love and the things that we do in his name. Uh, he doesn't forget that. You know, people forget all the time. You know, do things for people. They forget, okay? But remember, God doesn't. Or maybe just an angel there sort of recording the things that we have done, you know, for his name and for his honor and, and to please the Lord. And I think we need to remember that. We, we have a great example of this here. The, the Lord saying about this, you know, about Cornelius that, you know, I've seen, I've seen, you know, your, I've seen the good deeds. I've, seen, I've heard your prayers. Um, and so he says, send men to Joppa and send for Simon, uh, whose name is Peter. And, and it tells verse, basically in verse 6, he will tell you what you must do. And so you, you find oftentimes, you know, God will tell us what to do. But, you know, I find time and time again, he doesn't give you the details. He did that with Abraham. He did that with David. He just did that with Paul. He, he does that with us. Be careful that you don't become a scientist, that God has to prove everything to you, because that's not the life of faith. The, the life of faith is just taking God, you know, very simply at his word. And so Peter, he's saying here, is going to tell, uh, tell you what to do. I like Psalm, uh, Proverbs 16.3 when it says, Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. You know what that means? Translate it. To do it. To do it and your thoughts will be established. A lot of times we want to figure it out and then we're going to do it. Okay? Are you like that? I'm like that sometimes. I want to figure it out and I want to figure if I really want to do it. You know, kind of a thing. But commit your works to the Lord. Just simply do it, what God is leading you to do, and your thoughts and your thinking will be established. And again, Cornelius, a good soldier. He's a good soldier. He knows how to obey. And so he sends the men to Joppa, we're told in verse 8. But someone else needed a vision, not just Cornelius. The apostle Peter, he needed a vision as well. And we're told as they went on their journey and drew near the city, uh, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. The beautiful thing, you know, when God directs you, he's working both ends. The Bible says, the scripture says, he, he's, he's our, our point man. He goes before us. And Isaiah says over in chapter 58 that he's our rear guard. He goes before us. He's, he, he's our rear guard. He's above us. He's around us. See, there's a lot of errands that we can go on. And they're a waste of time. They're a waste of energy. Waste of expense. But I'll tell you what, when you go on God's errand. And, and, and a lot of times it's, 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 you know, it's like, well, where am I going? <laughs> what am I going to do when I get there? You don't get all those details. But again, God honors faith. God honors when we trust him. And we see that here 
in this particular story. And again, Peter went up to the housetop to pray. Amazing things happen when we pray. When we pray, expecting, believing. And, and that's what, again, that's remember, uh, what's at Hebrews chapter 3, uh, where it says, come boldly before the throne to find help in time of need. And remember on the day that, that Messiah was crucified, the temple, the, the curtain, like two inches thick of linen, it was torn asunder from top to the bottom. Remember, there was an earthquake too. And, uh, and basically what God was saying by that, because Messiah has come and paid for your sins, it's not just a high priest that can come in there anymore that we have access now. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is we have access. I, you know, I grew up, as, as a, you know, I grew up as a Catholic, and in that system, I had to go to a man. I had to go to man to confess my sins. I didn't know I could go right to God. You see, that's what Christ purchased for us, that we can have an access to the Almighty. And it doesn't have to be in a certain setting. It, it can be anywhere. It's privilege. It's, it's a, to pray is a privilege because God hears us. He hears us on the basis of the blood of his son. That's what's made us righteous. That, that's what's opened the door. That's what gives us access. And so verse 10, Peter, he's very hungry. He wants to eat, so he falls into a trance. And in the trance, he sees heaven open. And a great sheet descending to him and let down to the earth. And in this sheet was all kinds of four-footed animals, wild beasts, reptiles, creeping things, uh, unclean birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You know, God knows how to speak to someone who's hungry. He gives him a food vision, right? And it wasn't uncommon to, you know, <laughs> you know, we go to Wegmans and... Our meat looks so pretty, you know, you, you get this beautiful ground beef and it's, you know, it's got a little green pepper or some parsley on it and it's all neat and all the nasty, dirty work's been done in the back room where you can't see anybody, you know, the, 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 you know, the, 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 if you've ever gone to an old fashioned butcher shop, you know, he's got his apron on and his blood from here to there, you know, kind of a thing. And, uh, but in antiquity, as a matter of fact, my grandmother, my grandmother came from Ireland and she used to raise chickens and ducks and. And I can still remember, I can still remember smelling a chicken in the kitchen sink with hot water being poured over it so she could pluck the feathers out. And that smell is recorded in my memory. And I, at this, when I smell that smell, I want to run outside and just, you know, puke, you know, kind of a thing. But, um, you know, that's, we live in such a sanitized world when, when you really think about it. Um, and that's why that was one of the that was one of the sacrificial things of the Old Testament. You know, the priest they're covered, they're covered in head to blow, head to foot with blood. When you went into worship, you were sprinkled, you were sprinkled, and, and the idea is redemption comes by the shedding of blood. So this voice comes to Peter: "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." Now the problem is these are unclean. Under the Mosaic law. These, these were unclean creatures. 
And again, you can see the wisdom of God for his people in that ancient society. As they're in the wilderness, as they come into the land, and they get basically, they basically ate off the land. And in the prohibitions, there was a protection. It was practical. It was practical. And also, too, there was a spiritual aspect to it. The spiritual act, act, uh, issue was basically a separation from certain things. But also, too, in the dietary regulations of the Old Testament, there was a, a protection there from them just eating the wrong things and getting sick and dying. So, again, Peter is a kosher guy, and he's really in a pickle. I'm sorry. I had to throw that in. I love kosher pickles. And the voice spoke in verse 15 to him again, the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now, this great sheet is basically, it's the rest of humanity. It's the rest of the humanity aside from the Jewish world. Peter doesn't initially connect the dots on that. But this big sheet comes down with all these unclean creatures in it. And that, because that's how he was seeing the world outside of Judaism. He was seeing it in that way. And it's interesting how, you know, God has to work sometimes to, to free us. And here he's, he's in Gentile territory. <laughs> and again, this is the beginning. This is really the beginning in a very dramatic way of how he's going to cleanse and save Gentiles. I mean, it's such a demonstration to Peter. And he needs that. God only gives us what we need. So, so the Lord says to him, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And we're told this was done three times and, and the object was taken into heaven. And so Peter wondered within himself what this vision he had seen had been. Now, he hadn't connected the dots yet. But he's going to find the answer is at the front door. Again, God working. God giving him this vision. The funny thing, too, you find here is that, you know, the Lord's going to use him and at the same time use him in a wonderful way and correct an attitude. God ever do that to, with you? You're just sort of inspired and he uses you in a certain way. And as he does, all of a sudden there's an insight about a little issue, a little area, an attitude, you know, within your life, within your heart. He does that. He does that with us as well. That's why sometimes when God tells us to go somewhere and do something, we don't know what he's up to. We don't know what he's up to all the time. And that's why oftentimes he doesn't tell us what he's up to because we would, we would balk. We would say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going not to embarrass myself like that. <laughs> he knows. Now, the thing, too, you know, that Peter wondered within himself what the vision was or what it meant. And this vision was absolutely necessary because it brought clarification to this whole issue. Uh, or else it would have just simply been, it would have been a pizza dream. Okay? It would have just been pizza with anchovies, anchovies and he was dreaming about it at night. The, the vision would have not made any sense to him without this clarification. And so we find these men basically are standing before the gate. And verse 19, while Peter thought about the vision, behold, 
three men. Behold, three men are seeking you. Are the, as he thought about the vision, excuse me, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Man, he needed this insight from the Holy Spirit. Remember the Lord told us that the Holy Spirit, he'll guide you unto all truth. He will teach you. He will lead you. He will be with you, not just alongside them. And he's there for us. He's there to guide us into all truth. He's there to teach us. You know, sometimes I think I know a lot because I'm a pastor. <laughs> and the Lord shows me I know nothing. He's teaching me something new, something fresh, some, some new you know, aspect of himself and how some area where he wants to change me. Arise, therefore, go down, go with them, doubting nothing. For I have sent them. And we may find the Lord saying to us in some area, go. Go. Take a step. I know everybody that's gone on a short-term outreach and mission has had that question. Because every time I've gone on a short-term mission, I've asked that question. Because you don't know, you don't know all the particulars. You don't know all that's going to happen. You know, early on when I was a missions pastor back in the 80s and in the 90s, uh, I, I took teams out, and boy, I tell you what, we had some real major challenges. When you get to your destination, and and you realize that there's a the the, the so-called group of believers that were there were more cultic than they were biblical. And and we discovered that one time. And I just, as the leader, I just said, okay, we're pulling out of here. We're pulling out of here, and we're just going to have to trust the Lord. We're in Europe. We had 17 people. <laughs> it was kind of a, it was scary. And and yet, we ended up in France. <laughs> we were in, we were in um, Zurich, Switzerland, when that happened. And then we end up in France, up on the coast in France. And uh, before you know it, we're there, you know, building someone's house and ministering and, you know, doing all the different things that we had not been planned to do. But God has a wonderful way of working things out. We had no idea. Well, that wasn't on our agenda. That wasn't our plan to end up in France. Um, but it was his plan. It was his plan, his purpose. We want one another time. We got stuck at the Italian border. One of our vans broke down. We had like eight or nine people. We had to leave them because our other vans were filled. And yet, uh, you know, God had a wonderful way of of uh, just working, you know, miracles out in that particular situation. And we had to just. I remember that night as we left them at the Italian border. We had to go up the Alps like this, like a switchback, all the way up and all the way down, over into Austria. And yet God, you know, wonderfully used that whole thing and worked, you know, just worked his little miracles. Um, there are things that are not on the agenda, but yet, uh, you know, God is wonderfully faithful and, and, uh, and gracious. One, one of the trips in 91 in, in, in Scotland, uh, we ended up, uh, um, we, we, we met uh, this guy from, from Scotland and, 
and uh, I was at one of the conferences with Pastor Chuck and and uh, uh, made a request for to send uh, someone over and help him. And so uh, it, it came to Pastor Bill because the conference was, was in the Rochester area, and, and Bill says to me, because I'm the missions pastor, hey, uh, get all this guy and let's work something out. And we, we get over there, and, man, this guy's a cult. This guy is an absolute cult. And, um, and they, they put us in these, you know, they put us in this billeting that uh, uh, I wouldn't even put a dog there. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, boom, we have to change. We have to change, shift gears, and we end up um, with, uh, we end up uh, in, uh, I can't think of the city there in Scotland. Uh, we end up there, and we're doing an outreach with the kids, and it's like that wasn't on the agenda. But it was on God's agenda. And, and, you know, so often we pray, Lord, thy will be done. Thy will be done. We don't know always what that might mean. <laughs> but one thing it will mean and necessitate, that we become flexible people. See, I don't care who you are. God is working that in every one of our lives. He wants us to be pliable, flexible, because that means usable that God would put us in circumstances and situations where we would not ordinarily go. You know, to, to us, that's, you know, that's, that's Indian country, Gentile territory. I don't think I'll go there. That's scary. It's the other side of the tracks. <laughs> well, God wants to save people. You know, I, I just wonder, I just wonder, you know, if, if maybe the church in America has become somewhat stagnant in their outreach and in their overseas ministry, if God's bringing these people to us out of the southern border, could that possibly be? Hmm. Hmm. I think we sometimes have to be very careful. Of, of political viewpoints because God's got another viewpoint. I always find it's different. Always find God's perspective to be different and varied. And that's why we have to, you know, uh, what's it say? Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. We're always thrashing about. We're so busy. He says, be still and know that I am God. And Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius, we're in verse 21, and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason do you come? And they said, Cornelius a centurion, a just man, who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So, again, when the Spirit prompts and when he directs, uh, we very simply need to say yes. Um, compliance. Uh, compliance is obedience to God, uh, put within a biblical context. It's just simply obedience. To, and you know what it does? Obedience to God, sometimes we don't realize the ramifications that take place from obedience. In other words, what follows after obedience? And oftentimes it's the breaking of the negative patterns 
and attitudes that maybe we didn't even know were in our lives within our hearts. In closing, I want to read a little piece to you. And these are the words of a fellow pastor named Alexander White, old Scottish pastor. He says this, It would change your heart, your whole heart and life, this very night if you would take Peter and Cornelius home with you and lay them both to your heart. If you would take a four-cornered napkin when you go home with pen and ink and write the names of the nations, the churches, the denominations, the congregations, the ministers, the public men and private citizens and the neighbors and fellow worshipers, all the people that we dislike and despise and do not and cannot and will not love. Heap all these names and write them into this unclean napkin. And then look up and say to God, Not so, Lord. I will neither speak well nor think well nor hope well of these people. I cannot do it. I will not try. Well, if we acted out like that and spoke out all those evil things that are in our hearts, that thus we would get a sight of ourselves, our true condition, that it would impact us in such a way that we would never forget it. I don't know, maybe we need to do that. Maybe we need to write those names, those individuals, those politicians. Now that comes to mind real quick. You're, you're, you're going, mm, mm. <laughs> those co-workers, those folks who stabbed you in the back, Write them on that napkin. You know what? Give that napkin to God. Say, Lord, take this. Lord, take this napkin. Take, take these folks. Lord, take this re- resentment. Take this bitterness out of my heart. Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. Change me. Peter came away from this changed. And God uses these kinds of circumstances in our lives. So the next time he says, go, nothing doubting. There may be a great victory waiting for you when you do that. Amen. Lord, we we are so thankful. Lord, like Jonah said, Lord, you're so gracious. Your loving kindnesses. Your mercy. Lord, we have been the recipients Lord, of all these things. Lord, help our lives to be a conduit, to be a channel through which, Lord, you might reach out and touch someone that we would never touch. They might, they might, we might just consider them just as like lepers. Lord, work in us, I pray. Lord, if there's any attitude that has maybe come to mind as we've discussed these things, Lord, may we not justify it. Lord, may we may we just give it to you, look to you. Because, Lord, you can change us. Lord, you're in the business of changing hearts and lives. Your resurrection power, Lord, can take us above whatever our average was, whatever the normal is. Lord, we don't want to compare ourselves to the culture. Lord, that's defeat, that's failure. That's justification. 
Lord, we want to allow ourselves to be compared by your truth, by you and who you are. And you point these things out, Lord, never, ever, ever to condemn us. But just to put a light upon those things where we need change. So we thank you for that.